Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. First, though, just to address the major news of the week right up front, we are, in fact, marking our 15th anniversary since the launch of this show. I'll assume you're applauding, so thank you for that. For that reason, it seems particularly fitting that we would be marking the occasion with an episode in which we shall learn about the years and years of warning signs we have been highlighting since 2006 that collectively predict the armed insurrection against the government we have just witnessed as the natural endpoint for a radicalized, conspiratorial, white, Christian supremacist, permanent minority of a political movement that has lost its ability to win power by legitimate means. I will be your guide as we make our way through the years, and we will start with an interview with Chris Hedges from 2007 discussing the rise of Christian fascism. He joins us now to talk about his new book, American Fascist, The Christian Right and the War on America. Chris, on back of your book, you say that a a professor at Harvard Divinity School told you that when you became his age, you said in in this excerpt he was 80 years old, but he told you when you were in Harvard Divinity School that when you became his age that you would be fighting something called Christian fascism. Uh, Have you found that to be? You're not his age. Not yet. You're you're half his age. But are, are you already seeing that start develop? Well, first of all, what is it, and do you believe that he was right? He was right. Um, you know, at the time he warned us as seminarians, it came, this is about 25 years ago, at the same moment that Pat Robertson and other radio and televangelists began speaking about this new uh, political religion uh, that would create a Christian nation and taken control of uh, denominations, of secular institutions, and eventually of the government itself. And we've watched since James Luther Adams' warning uh, over the past 25 years how this movement has uh, migrated from the fringes of American society to the very centers of power. Yeah, the term we hear all the time, of course, is dominionist, and, and that is that has become the equivalent of what he was trying to say about Christian fascist, I suppose. D- describe dominionist. A dominionist or Christian reconstructionist is someone who believes that uh, they have been given a, a divine and moral right to create a Christian America, a Christian nation. Um, you know, and let me back up by when I use the term Christian, um, I look at these people as heretics. I come out of the church. My father was a Presbyterian minister. I graduated from Harvard Divinity School, uh, as you mentioned. And they have created, you know, through the huge distortion and corruption of the Christian religion and ideological belief system uh, that is essentially about bigotry and hatred and intolerance. And that has been a mutation within the evangelical tradition or within fundamentalist cir- circles that is extremely important and very, very different from what we saw in the past. I mean, fundamentalists have always called on followers to remove themselves from the contaminants of secular society, uh, not to be involved in politics. Evangelicals, and we won't get into the differences between fundamentalists and evangelicals, uh, of which there are many, mm-hmm. um, but they have also, through traditional figures like Billy Graham, called on their followers to be very wary of political power. And Graham himself, of course, got burned by Richard Nixon and ever since spent time warning evangelicals uh, to stay out of the centers of power. 
there's a difference between uh, you know religion playing a part in political life and the political life of this nation, which it always has, and imposing a narrow particular religious ideology on the rest of us. That's a huge difference. For these next three clips, we'll be going back even further to 2006 to discuss threats of violence to and political manipulation of the judiciary, resulting in a stark warning of the path we were beginning to walk from former Supreme Court Justice appointed by Ronald Reagan, Sandra Day O'Connor. Apparently, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, gave a speech in South Africa last month in which she said that both she and Sandra Day O'Connor uh, had death threats against them a year ago by someone who called on the Internet for the immediate patriotic killing of them. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor said last week during her speech at Georgetown Law School that the justices had received threats. But this was kind of an unusual level of detail. Apparently, at the speech in South Africa, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, described very specifically what the death threat was. Now, this speech, we don't have any audio of it. It was They, they posted the, the text of it um, online earlier this month without an announcement, and Legal Times started, uh, wrote an article about it yesterday. So that's how it came to light. But apparently what happened is um, there was uh, in a website chat room around the time that uh, Tom Feeney of, of Florida uh, had, had written about legislation on his website uh, basically to, to rein in the judiciary. Um, someone in a website chat room wrote, quote, OK, commandos, here is your first patriotic assignment, an easy one. Supreme Court Justices Ginsburg and O'Connor have publicly stated that they use foreign laws and rulings to decide how to rule on American cases. This is a huge threat to our republic and constitutional freedom. If you are what you say you are and not armchair patriots, then those two justices will not live another week. That was the way the death threat was made manifest to the Supreme Court justices. And in this speech that Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave, she tied the political attacks on justices. She tied the fact that, for example, Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, had said that maybe the reason there have been increased attacks on judges is because judges make so many bad rulings these days and patriotic Americans feel like, uh, if, if you feel like Americans uh, ought to step up against judges who are making rulings they disagree with. Those kind of excuses for, for physical violence and physical threats against judges, those things encourage a radical fringe. And we've seen that happen in the abortion movement as well, right? The people who shoot abortion doctors justify their rhetoric with people who are much closer into the mainstream who nevertheless subtly justify abortion, uh, uh, justify violence against their opponents on abortion or any other issue. Supreme Court justices keep many opinions private, but a former justice is speaking out. Yesterday, Sandra Day O'Connor criticized Republicans who criticized the courts. She said the critics challenged the independence of judges and the freedoms of all Americans. Her speech at Georgetown University was not available for broadcast, but NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg was there. In an unusually forceful and forthright speech, O'Connor said that attacks on the judiciary by some Republican leaders pose a direct threat to our constitutional freedoms. 
O'Connor began by conceding that courts do have the power to make presidents or the Congress or governors, as she put it, really, really angry. But, she continued, if we don't make them mad some of the time, we probably aren't doing our jobs as judges. And our effectiveness, she said, is premised on the notion that we won't be subject to retaliation for our judicial acts. The nation's founders wrote repeatedly, she said, that without an independent judiciary to protect individual rights from the other branches of government, those rights and privileges would amount to nothing. But, said O'Connor, as the Founding Fathers knew, statutes and constitutions don't protect judicial independence, people do. And then she took aim at former House GOP leader Tom DeLay. She didn't name him, but she quoted his attacks on the courts at a meeting of the conservative Christian group Justice Sunday last year when DeLay took out after the courts for rulings on abortion, prayer, and the Terry Schiavo case. This, said O'Connor, was after the federal courts had applied Congress's one-time-only statute about Schiavo as it was written, not, said O'Connor, as the congressman might have wished it were written. The response to this flagrant display of judicial restraint, said O'Connor, her voice dripping with sarcasm, was that the congressman blasted the courts. It gets worse, she said, noting that death threats against judges are increasing. It doesn't help, she said, when a high-profile senator suggests there may be a connection between violence against judges and decisions that the senator disagrees with. She didn't name him, but it was Texas Senator John Cornyn who made that statement after a Georgia judge was murdered in the courtroom and the family of a federal judge in Illinois murdered in the judge's home. O'Connor observed that there have been a lot of suggestions lately for so-called judicial reforms, recommendations for the massive impeachment of judges, stripping the courts of jurisdiction, and cutting judicial budgets to punish offending judges. Any of these might be debatable, she said, as long as they are not retaliation for decisions that political leaders disagree with. I, said O'Connor, am against judicial reforms driven by nakedly partisan reasoning. Pointing to the experiences of developing countries and former communist countries where interference with an independent judiciary has allowed dictatorship to flourish, O'Connor said we must be ever vigilant against those who would strong-arm the judiciary into adopting their preferred policies. It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, she said, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. She says, quote, It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Now, that is a powerful, powerful statement to be made from somebody who was on the Supreme Court and who's from the same party appointed by Ronald Reagan and gave George Bush the presidency in that five to four decision. She's talking, she's warning specifically about a dictatorship in this country and saying, by the way, exactly what we say on this show. We're not there, we're not at the end, but she said it a lot more eloquently than we did. We should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. We could go deeper, but for the sake of time, we will now jump ahead a full 10 years to the 2016 presidential primary campaign. Tim, we've been following with great interest the impact that Donald Trump's candidacy in the Republican primary has had on so of sort of coalescing and catalyzing the white supremacist movement. We've seen endorsements from people like David Duke, former KKK member. We've seen the white supremacist website Stormfront have to literally upgrade servers to 
account for the traffic that is coming to them as a result of the Trump presidency. Talk to us about your analysis of Trump and sort of coalescing this racist vote. Well, you know, this has been a long term political project for the far right, going back really to the Wallace days in the late 60s and certainly, you know, extending through, let's say, uh, the David Duke campaigns in Louisiana in 90 and 91 for U.S. Senate and governor, which I was involved in uh, defeating him at that time in an organization there. Um, and I think what the right's been trying to do is find a candidate who would do the same thing Duke did and the same thing Wallace did, which is scapegoat people of color, scapegoat uh, religious minorities, scapegoat poor folks. In the case of Donald Trump, scapegoat immigrants, which is something Duke also did for problems that they did not create because part of the right-wing backlash to the civil rights movement, the right-wing backlash to the women's movement, the right-wing backlash to just about every form of social progress in the past hundred years has been about doing that, has been about taking real legitimate economic problems that working class folks face and then putting a face on those problems that is brown, that is black, that is foreign. Um, so it isn't just the overt white nationalists, though I'm sure they're very pleased to have someone like Trump who never wore um, a swastika or a Klan robe uh, and did not stand in the schoolhouse door like Wallace and say segregation forever right. to be able to coalesce some of those views. Having said that, it's also really galvanizing not just those folks, but a larger mass of white folks who are gripped in nostalgia for an America that they look at very fondly because they can, because it worked for them. Uh, and they see change. They see cultural change, economic change, political change. And part of the reactionary mind is a fear of ambiguity, a fear of uncertainty, a fear of change. That's the thing I think we as Americans have to get our heads around. It isn't enough to talk about the connections to white nationalists and white supremacists, it's really about how Trump is galvanizing white anxiety in a way that the Tea Party a few years ago could only have dreamt of. If you have always been someone who was able to look at you and yours and say, we are Americans, we're what an American is, we're the prototype, the floor model of an American, and now you're confronted with a reality that you're going to have to share that designation with people who don't look like you, don't pray like you, have different customs than you, that can generate not only anxiety and fear, but also a lot of anger and hostility and the sense that you're being victimized. This white victimization, which David Duke and white supremacists have been playing upon with you know phony arguments and phony analysis and bad data for a long time, has now become mainstream. So the problem, and we said this during the anti Duke campaigns in the early 90s is not so much Duke as it was Dukeism. Now it's not so much Trump as it is Trumpism. You reported recently in The Nation that Trump is, quote, bringing out of the woodwork every crank and fanatic in the country. I know you talked to some of the cranks and fanatics. Where did you find them, and what did they tell you? You know, unfortunately, I didn't have to look very hard. I went to Sparks, just outside Reno in Nevada, to cover the caucus there. And I went to the First Baptist Church, which was a suburban church. Seven precincts were caucusing there. And I just started asking people, who are you going to vote for? And if they said they were voting for Trump, I started asking them very particular questions around immigration and around what they saw, thought of Muslims. And the reason I did that was Trump's obviously got a tremendous following, at least based in part on the fact that he plays a very demagogic game when it comes to 
the southern border with Mexico and when it comes to America's relationship with the Muslim world and with Muslims living in America. So I started asking people what they thought, and not just a couple, but one after another after another, the default position was all Muslims should be expelled from America. And a goodly number of the people I talked to said they should be given a choice of being executed or being deported. And you hear language like this, and it's the language of fascism. It's the language of the pogrom from out of the 1930s in Europe. It's the language of sort of the pre-Hitler years when all of the certainties of Weimar democracy began crumbling, and you could start saying anything and thinking anything and doing anything, and the political structures had no ability in place to push back. And what I saw in Nevada began to terrify me, because I think what has happened with the Trump campaign is he's given the okay Anybody and everybody who's angry to voice their bigotries in a way that it hasn't been okay to do for decades in this country. One more question about your interviews with Trump supporters in Nevada. What did they know about you? They they knew that I was writing for a magazine, and they knew nothing else. They did ask me, several did ask me if I was Jewish based on my name. I've, I've been asked that question before in settings in journalism, but it's always discomforting when somebody wants to know who you are ethnically before they start talking with you. It means that what they're trying to do is ferret out, are you, quote unquote, one of us? And that's the politics of absolute division. Um, now, you've belatedly seen a few Republicans sort of in a sputtering kind of way start to critique this language. Mitt Romney started critiquing this language. Some of the governors have started and a few of the senators. But the overwhelming majority of elected officials in the Republican Party are not using the language to call out Trump. What they're doing is they're saying they don't like him. They're saying he's a bit of a buffoon or a clown. But they're not using the language that says this man is a fascist that he's coddling the support of white supremacists, that he's not really disavowing the support of the KKK, or if he does so, it's only after a firestorm of criticism, that he gets the support of the French fascist leader, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and he doesn't disavow it, that he gets robocalls from one white supremacist group after another, arguing on his behalf, and he hasn't disavowed that, that at every step of the way, He's playing this double game. He's saying to the Republicans, vote for me because I can create a broad coalition. But he's saying to the white supremacists in code, vote for me because I'll be sympathetic to your values. Today's episode is sponsored by The New Yorker magazine, which has literally been a permanent part of my media diet for as long as I can remember. Even before I could read, I always enjoyed gazing at the iconic covers of the magazines that were delivered to my parents' home. Eventually, I worked my way up to the cartoons, and now I am proud to say I even understand the humor most of the time. For you, though, I'm sure what you'll appreciate is their quality writing and compelling reporting and storytelling. It's not an accident that The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world and not just for the cartoons. In both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America today, and there's something for everyone. Politics, news, and a bunch of other things that claim to be separate from politics and news, but actually are anyway, like international affairs, climate change, the environment, popular culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, and cartoons, of course, all of which are actually 
political. A subscription includes home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to the New Yorker website. And for a limited time, you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. That's a savings of 50%, plus listeners of my show will receive an exclusive tote bag for free. Go to newyorker.com slash best. That's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-E-R dot com slash best to get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. newyorker.com slash best. I'm going to switch to the next story here because the Secret Service told me that they don't escort anybody out. They don't care. They're not trying to enforce what Donald Trump says. Really? Uh, because there's a Time reporter at a different rally, um, and his name is Christopher Morris. He's actually very well known. And, uh, and let's take a look at what happened to him when he stepped outside of the pen, the holding pen they have for the press, just a little bit. <laughs> That was a Secret Service agent who picked up a member of the press by the neck and choke slammed. And that is confirmed by the other reporters. I know the video started rolling right as he was slamming him down. Other reporters at the scene said, yes, picked him up by the neck and threw him to the ground. And then you see the reporter uh, kicking back a little bit. And then, of course, the right wingers are like, oh, see, he kicked back. What would you do if somebody slammed you to the ground like that? Wait, Secret Service, I didn't think you threw out anybody. What, what happened? Now, see, the, understand why this is so important, why it's so scary. Before, it was Donald Trump speaking like a fascist. Then his supporters at rallies started assaulting protesters, and that was his brown shirts acting like fascists. Now he's got the government working for him acting like fascists. Whether it's the local cops, it's the Secret Service in this case, hey, you know what? Let me show you uh, the reporter after he got body slammed explaining why uh, the Secret Service did this to him. So you're just trying to go and cover the protest and... I just, I stepped 18 inches out of the pen and he grabbed me by the neck and started choking me and he slammed me to the ground. If you step 18 inches out of the cage that they have for the press, now the Secret Service is slamming you to the ground. And Matt, and this is before he even wins. This is before he wins the Republican nomination or the presidency. Imagine what happens if he wins the presidency. How will he use his power? When CBS head Les Moonves chuckled that the mean-spirited, myth-driven, racist, and misogynist candidacy of Donald Trump, quote, may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, that's all I got to say, close quote, he was laying bare the lie that there's no relationship between corporate media's profit motive and the humanity of the conversation they encourage. Moonves said he wasn't taking any side, but he was. And that divide has been further exposed by CNN's recent hiring of Trump's fired campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. 
Lewandowski's job involved enforcing Trump's blacklist of media he disliked and confining reporters to a pen during campaign events. He shoved and threatened to pull credentials from a CNN reporter who defied the edict, and he grabbed and restrained reporter Michelle Fields, which led to criminal charges that were later dropped. And it doesn't matter, say folks like former NPR ombud Alicia Shepard, whose op-ed in USA Today called the hire, quote, a smart move for CNN, which is, after all, a business dependent on increasing viewership, close quote. This isn't rocket science, Shepard says, quote, it's political theater and you have to have big names to fill the seats. Lewandowski will do just that, close quote. Well, maybe. But if that's all it is, why wouldn't CNN just go to an all-explosion and naked people schedule? Both of those have been known to draw in viewers. But wait, wait, there's more. Another CNN reporter told The Post, putting Lewandowski on the payroll could improve CNN's access to Trump. Well, Trump hasn't been shy about interviews, and CNN hasn't been stingy in covering him, even airing empty podiums at which Trump was scheduled to speak over other candidates actually speaking. But still, the hire can't hurt with resolving issues with his campaign, the source says. So there you have it. Hiring someone for your news channel who is deeply, sometimes physically, opposed to critical journalism is clever because it might help ensure you can continue to give his former boss a platform. A boss whose attitude toward the press is expressed in the statement, quote, I would never kill them, but I do hate them, close quote. And with that, we move to the days immediately following the November election of 2016. Anyone who followed the 2016 election closely, uh, specifically followed the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center, of people like uh, uh, David Nywert, absolutely knew what would happen if Donald Trump won the election. Because those groups, those, those journalists explained in very clear detail, uh, Chauncey DeVay at Salon, another great friend of Ring of Fire, another person who warned us extensively about this. They told us if Donald Trump wins, it is going to embolden and empower racist bigots all across this country. And here we are just a couple days past the election and you know what's happening? Non-white children in schools across the United States are being verbally assaulted by white uh, students who support, or I guess whose families support Donald Trump. And they're doing it in the name of Donald Trump. This is Trump's America now is what they're telling these kids. Build the wall, build the wall. Chants like that have been heard in schools across this country. Muslims, uh, uh, adult Muslims on the street have had their head wraps ripped off saying, you're not welcome here anymore, Muslim. This, this is getting insane. Donald Trump wants to take to Twitter and insult and try to strip away the rights of the people protesting his election. Why doesn't he get out there and say, listen, supporters, drop it. Let it go. You're not going to be an ass to 
to other human beings. And you're sure as hell not going to be an ass to children in school. But he won't. He doesn't have that kind of courage. He doesn't have that kind of decency. He doesn't have that kind of foresight. He's just an ass himself who believes these things. But something has to be done. Even before the election, out of 5,000 educators polled across the United States, one third of them said that they had seen an uptick in uh, 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 verbal assaults and even physical assaults at times against students of color and uh, Muslim students in the United States. One third of educators said that they had seen that and they attribute it to the rise of Donald Trump in the United States. I received in the wake of the Donald Trump presidential election, the vilest hate mail that I believe I've ever received. And if you look at my hate mail folder, there are thousands upon thousands of emails in there. I'm going to show it to you in a second. The backstory of this entire situation is Donald Trump is one thing, right? Uh, but the violent and dangerous racists and xenophobes who have been emboldened by Donald Trump's election as president elect are another thing. They are very disturbing and a top concern for all sorts of civil rights groups across the country. Uh, we're going to get into some of the broader data, but I want to give you just this first data point. Case in point, this is the vilest hate mail I've probably ever received, and I receive a lot. And this is just one example of the many that have come in after Donald Trump was elected. This is very aggressive. I'm just warning you, we are going to put it up on the screen. Some viewers may find this very disturbing and I will read it to you. Let's take a look at it, Pat. This was an email from somebody uh, using the email address gas a kike at hotmail.com, probably a fake email address. Uh, these email addresses often just uh, put in there uh, as, as part of the entire thing. The subject racist anti-white kikes fail to stop Trump. And it was from someone calling themselves Kikey Kikestein. The message to me, you are nothing but an inbred kike gas chamber rat, Pacman. No one listened to the SF Jew media this election, and no one ever will again. Everyone is now aware of you kikes promoting white genocide. You are effing finished, Jew boy. Enjoy your new president. Hmm. Also over the weekend, I was home in uh, Western Massachusetts. Racist, anti-Semitic, pro-Trump uh, graffiti appeared on a cliffside in East Hampton, Massachusetts, on the cliffside on Mount Tom. Significant outrage from local residents. A bunch of my friends showed up and actually uh, painted over it. It said everything from gas the Jews, uh, kill all black people without using that word, Trump 2016, and swastikas. Also, some friends of mine in Greenfield, Massachusetts, this is this is a very liberal area where there were enclaves of Trump support, but by and large, a very liberal area uh, reporting that not far from uh, really right next to a synagogue in the Greenfield, Massachusetts area, a swastika carved into the sidewalk. Department of Public Works reportedly came out and uh, ground it down. It's just been hours since, Trump, since Trump's election. This is very scary stuff. So 
by now, I'm sure everybody watching this understands that Steve Bannon, uh, the guy from Breitbart, is going to be Donald Trump's chief strategist and senior counselor in the White House. And I'm sure most people watching this also understand that Steve Bannon is a huge anti-Semite. A lot of folks are calling him a white nationalist. Um, there's a little debate about that, but there's no question that this guy holds deeply racist views. He helped to push Breitbart in a incredibly racist and misogynistic direction, which then became, uh, made Breitbart the haven for the alt-right and for Trump supporters to go on there and hate on uh, uh, Jewish people, on black people, on Muslims, on Latinas, Hispanics, whatever. They hated on all of them there. And it's because of Steve Bannon. But here's the part of the story where things start to get a little screwy. You see, there's a lot of people on the right. And to be honest, there's even some on the left who have said, you know what? Let's take a step back. Donald Trump won. Maybe we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps all of this racism and misogyny that came out during the campaign was nothing more than a talking point to kind of get his base energized now that he's elected. Maybe he won't be so bad. Look, we are less than a week past the national election. And Donald Trump has already supported or, or, or promoted this anti-Semite uh, borderline white nationalist to be his chief strategist. This man is going to have significant influence over policy in the United States for the next four years. So if anyone out there still thinks that maybe we should have a wait and see approach to Donald Trump, just look at Steve Bannon. Now, just a quick warning for the bone-chilling nature of what you're about to hear. I included the following horrifying clips in one of my first episodes after the 2016 election to give a glimpse into the perspective of gleeful white nationalists celebrating the election. Honestly, like, this is the problem you want to have. Sure. The problem you want to have is not being a powerless minority. It's how do we increase our majority and retain and build on the power that we now have. Mm -hmm. And so, like, this is very different. We are in uncharted territory. Because like I said, if if our opposition, meaning the Jews, meaning the blacks, you know, like like their, their special interest groups. This is, Again, we're not referring to every single person in these groups. That's just not the way things work. Mm -hmm. But they're very well financed and very well organized and very experienced organizations. If they, if they want to beat us now, they're going to have to both use some things that have worked in the past, like, like in inculcating us with a sense of white guilt and things mm -hmm. like that. But mm -hmm. they're also going to have to try some other things because obviously what they tried to, to stop Trump with in the primary and in the general didn't work. It didn't, it didn't stop us. It didn't lessen our enthusiasm at all. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder what they'll try next. I would mm -hmm. think that they're going to try to co-opt it. And that's one of my, one of my concerns that we need to pray that Trump does not get people around him who will get him to weaken yes. and, and, and just give away things. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. But instead that, that he'll look, to us mm -hmm. and so we as a movement we need to we need to be more to the right than he is right mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. need to push him mm -hmm. we need to encourage him we need to mm -hmm. support him make more babies and yeah. raise them right right yeah raise them to um be because to because, love their own well yeah and, and seriously like one of the big problems we have is that 
when you look at the younger demographic, we are a minority. When you look at children, Mm -hmm. whites are a minority. Mm -hmm. So even if not one single more immigrant comes in. Yes. Okay. So we've, we've got major work to do. We need to, we do need to have more children Mm -hmm. and we do need to somehow make sure that there are fewer of, of the other, which Mm -hmm. I'm talking, I'm talking non-lethal means here. Right. Right. You know, so we're talking, go home. Mm -hmm. We're talking, wouldn't you be happier somewhere else? <laughs> or you will be happier somewhere else. <laughs> See ya. Right. <laughs> this, this is no longer an option. <laughs> we would occasionally talk about the Trump campaign just because it was such a tremendous opportunity for us who are normal people. Yeah. Well, it offered a lot of hope, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was like, wow, somebody really... In the I'm limelight. not weird. Yeah. They're talking about what we want to talk about. Exactly. They're saying, they're making me feel like I am okay. Yes. Yeah. And that's somebody, basically like my big brother mm-hmm. or, or, you know, like my, my uncle right. is going to stand up for right. us. Like he's and not right so cool. about absolutely everything, yeah. but he at least can see your point of view and takes it with gusto. We've got one last chance yeah i mean Mm -hmm. this is it folks this is god saying okay i will give you one more chance which you don't deserve yeah and more than that this is one last chance under really nice conditions we get yeah we get the government to like us oh yeah like in an in the most extreme way it ever has in the last 50 years at least Mm -hmm. you know i mean donald trump is about as out there, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of being supportive as any candidate we could have ever hoped for. Let alone his son. Yeah. Oh, oh hey, hey. hey, hey, we might have a convert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to win Donald Trump Jr. over to the cause, like out and out. Right. I mean, he's already tweeting, like retweeting alt-right guys like Kevin yes. McDonald and whatever. We've seriously got to get him to be like the first explicit alt-right major candidate. Dude should run for Senate. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Seriously, in a couple of years. He has politics in his future, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. Please. (laughs) Now, we could ask, why is it that it's never before come this close to power? And that, I think, is a reasonable question. But I wish we could look at American history without seeing exactly this kind of demagogic white ring nationalism, but we can't. You know, one of my favorite moments where you see it coming up goes all the way back to um, Mark Twain's descriptions of America before the Civil War. If you read about, if you remember Huck Finn's pap in the great novel, Huckleberry Finn, you'll remember that pap, the town drunk, who's abusive and absurd, when he gets drunk enough, he launches into a screed about how this government ain't a government anymore. Um, And why isn't it a government? It's because they allow free blacks to vote. This is a wonderful government. Wonderful. Well, looky here. There was a free n- from Ohio. A mulatter, most as white as a white man. He had the whitest shirt on you ever see, too. And, and he picks on an uppity black man, uncannily like Barack Obama. And the shiniest hat. And there ain't a man in that town's got as fine clothes as what he had. And he had a gold watch and chain and a silver-headed cane. Who he saw being allowed to vote, and it just enraged him. They said he could vote. 
What is this country a coming to? And it's quite clear that that sense that there needs to be uh, an underclass, that there needs to be uh, a people who are safely beneath embattled uh, white ethnics uh, is a very, very powerful one in American history. So I don't think it is an entirely new thing. And the reasonable question is, is how does it gotten so close to taking power? And that, I think, is a good question. You know, Donald Trump talks about deporting people based on their religion. That would have been inconceivable from a major national politician not that long ago. We're understandably and appropriately reluctant to use the word fascism too liberally, so to speak, (laughs) because we understand that the consequences of fascism in Europe were so unimaginably dire that we don't want to stick uh, uh, every populist authoritarian with that same label. But it's not wrong, you know. I had the, um, I don't know whether to call it the good fortune or the ill fortune, to actually read Hitler's Mein Kampf a few months ago. It was being republished in German, and I read it in for the first time in English and in German, drawing on my graduate school German, which is none too good. Nonetheless, one of the things that's startling about it, to read it, is that uh, we think of Hitler because of the ultimate consequences of Hitler as being above all an anti-Semite, and God knows he's an anti-Semite in Mein Kampf. But the theme of the book is make Germany great again. That's what it's all about. And it's exactly the notion that there's a conspiracy against the true Volk, against the true ethnic core of Germany, against the real Germany, as we have the real America, and that that conspiracy takes in both threatening outsiders, Muslims or Mexicans who are going to come in against us, and simultaneously has already subverted the democratic institutions so that the people in Weimar Germany, the the liberal Democrats, were themselves tools of these conspiring outsiders. And we have exactly the same pattern with Trump and Trumpism. Uh, So Obama is an alien outsider who's truly, something's going on, is Trump's formula, meaning that he's really in league with the Muslim terrorists who are coming uh, to get us. So that form, not only of hyper-extended nationalism, but of a nationalism that depends on a pervasive outside threat that has already taken over the institutions of the so-called democracy. That's exactly the core ideology of what we properly call fascism. And now we move to the days immediately following Trump's inauguration. President Donald Trump fired acting Attorney General Sally Yates on Monday night, just hours after she announced the Justice Department would not defend Trump's executive order, temporarily banning all refugees as well as citizens from seven Muslim majority nations. Yates had written a memo saying, quote, I am responsible for ensuring that the positions we take in court remain consistent with this institution's solemn obligation to always seek justice and stand for what is right. I am not convinced that the defense of the executive order is consistent with these responsibilities, nor am I convinced that the executive order is lawful. Yates had served in the Justice Department for 27 years. 
The White House issued a statement last night reading, The acting attorney general, Sally Yates, has betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order designed to protect the citizens of the United States, unquote. It went on to say, Ms. Yates is an Obama administration appointee who's weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. It's time to get serious about protecting our country, unquote. President Trump had asked Yates to serve as acting attorney general until the Senate confirms Senator Jeff Sessions, a close ally of Trump. Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer of New York praised Sally Yates for speaking out. So, Mr. President, we've had a number, a large number of eloquent speeches about the president's executive order. And while they were going on, of course, we had a Monday night massacre, Sally Yates, a person of great integrity who follows the law was fired by the president. She was fired because she would not enact, pursue the executive order on the belief that it was illegal, perhaps unconstitutional. It was a profile in courage. It was a brave act and a right act. And I hope the president and his people who were in the White House learned something from this. How can you run a country like this? How can you take a major order, major doing, and not check it out with your Homeland Security sec Secretary, with the Justice Department and the Attorney General? I would say, Mr. President, if this continues, this country has big trouble. We cannot have a Twitter presidency. Christian, you recently gave a speech in which you said that it was important for journalists not to lose their nerve now in light of the backlash they're getting, but to recommit to real reporting. Why do you believe that's so imperative right now? Well, for several reasons, Diana, good to be with you. Number one, the uh, Donald Trump campaign suddenly put the fate and the safety and the freedom of American journalists right in the focus. And people were being targeted at, at rallies with all sorts of hateful rhetoric, journalists being called by Donald Trump despicable and dishonest, the most lying people he had ever met, etc., etc. So this is something that's unacceptable. There is no First Amendment right to threaten the safety and the freedom of American journalists. By contrast, there is a First Amendment right for American journalists to operate in freedom and safety. So taking all that, we realize now that we have to actually fight to defend that space, not just our rights, but the factual space. Because, Diana, what all this coincides with is this terrible tsunami, this virus of fake news, otherwise known as lies, which are peddled across social media, places like Facebook, with a massive wide distribution. So for all those reasons, we have to fight to defend facts right now in what's been described as a post-truth world. You cited a tweet sent out by Donald Trump, in fact, right after his win, when there were still demonstrators in the streets, and he said they were professional protesters incited by the media. What about that concerned you? Well, you know, my blood ran cold when I saw that. First and foremost, the idea of professional protesters has been debunked by the very fake news writer who wrote it and made it up. But the second most importantly chilling thing was to hear the words incited by the media. Those are the kinds of words that we hear in the 
non-democratic part of the world, if you like, in places where uh, authoritarian leaders blame the press, demonize the press, use the press as the organized opposition. They target the press and set the press up as an opposition to their government. And they do it by subtly ratcheting up the accusations against the press. So inciting, sympathizing, associating, actually being terrorists and subversives. And as you know, journalists around the world are routinely locked up, put in jail, put on trial on on phony charges. So that's why that worried me very much. And I felt I had to, uh, you know, push back on that and take a stand against that. President Trump is facing widespread criticism for his latest comments on the deadly white supremacist protest in Charlottesville, Virginia. Speaking at Trump Tower Tuesday, Trump said the violence was in part caused by what he called the alt-left. Okay, what about the alt-left that came charging at me? Excuse me. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? This is what, let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that was a horrible, horrible day. Wait a minute. I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. That was a horrible day. Mr. President, are you putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane? I'm not putting anybody on a moral plan. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. President Trump's comments were widely decried. Former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney tweeted, no, not the same. One side is racist, bigoted Nazi. The other opposes racism and bigotry. Morally different universes, unquote. A year later, now in 2018, we more fully analyze not just what kind of a president we feared Trump would be or what kind of following he would inspire, but have confirmed for us many of our worst fears. A couple of political scientists, this is uh, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, both professors at Harvard. Uh, they, They just published a new book titled How Democracies Die. And in that book, they said that there are four warning signs when you're looking at a politician to indicate that that politician may become a Mussolini or a Hitler, that he may become a or she may become an authoritarian uh, destroyer of democracy. And those five, four criteria. Now, actually, before I tell you these criteria, let me give you the, the kind of backstory. He says, a public, a, 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 Stephen, the, the, the two professors, Harvard professors who wrote this book, write, a politician who meets even one of these criteria is cause for concern. With the exception of Richard Nixon, no major party presidential candidate, not even presidents, candidates, no major party presidential candidate met even one of these four criteria over the last century. So from 1900 till today, 
No presidential candidate, with the exception of Richard Nixon, met even one of these criteria, and Nixon only met one of the four. Here's the criteria. Number one, the leader shows only a weak commitment to democratic rules. Well, that's Donald Trump, right? Flaunting the rules, see what you can get away with, break the law. Number two, he or she denies the legitimacy of opponents. Trump said Obama wasn't even born in the United States. He calls Hillary Clinton a criminal, crooked Hillary, all this stuff. Number three, he or she, rather than respecting the opponents, which is something even Nixon did. Number three, he or she tolerates violence. Trump saying to people, hey, you know, rough them up a little bit and I'll, I'll uh, pay your legal fees. Or saying to a convention of police officers, hey, stop putting your hands on people's heads when you put them in the car. Bang them around a little. Or words to that effect. And number four, he or she, she shows, shows some willingness to curb civil liberties or the media. Did you catch Trump's speech yesterday about how he wants to, quote, reform our nation's libel laws so that he can sue Michael Wolff, who wrote this book? I mean, that's what it's all about, right? So these four criteria, the authors of this book say, again, with the exception of Richard Nixon, no major party candidate met even one. Nixon met only one. Unfortunately, Donald Trump meets them all. It's impossible to have fascist ideas without some kind of sense of conspiracy. There's a few primary things, right? The, uh, the most obvious is uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jews controlling finance, the media, social systems, whatever. Um, usually it's whatever the enemy of the day is. Uh, Jews control it, uh, according to them. That's the most obvious version of it. But in reality, it's all baked into conspiratorial worldview um, at its very basic core. You know, what fascists believe is that human beings are fundamentally unequal. They, dis- they disregard 99% of modern science, of our understanding of technology, of social history, almost all of it, and then replace it with their own version. And for, for those their version to be true, there has to be mass, mass conspiracies that basically hiding us from the reality of the world. Uh, a really good example is uh, a focus on Egypt. And there's a lot of focus um, from white supremacists on Egypt and trying to prove that, that ancient Egyptians were actually Europeans. Now, there's no evidence that's actually accepted <laughs> amongst anthropologists that that's true. It's just factually untrue. Yeah, if I was to Google search right now, I would find dozens, maybe hundreds of white supremacist websites proving the linkages, uh, showing falsified documents, saying that governments covered things up. Um, it requires a mass, mass global infrastructure of conspiracy to make what they think true. The same is true of race and IQ arguments. This stuff has been discredited for 70 years now, yet they keep drumming it up and saying that you know, um, colleges, government institutions, media figures are, are hiding the truth about race differences in intelligence. Um, these are fundamentally untrue things, but it requires a conspiratorial worldview. I think with something like Alex Jones is he, he may drop the obvious racial connotations to the conspiracy, but he maintains the conspiracy infrastructure itself. So and, th- and we see this a lot in conspiracy circles that try and claim that they're non-racist. They'll essentially take an anti-Semitic conspiracy, change Jews to bankers or to Rothschilds or something like that. And continue the same logic that there's a cabal of people who use crisis to control things for their interests and not our own. What it does is it, it stops us from looking at social systems. It's not capitalism. It's these people, right? If only these people were gone, we could take care of capitalism ourselves. 
but it also uh, uh, essentially keeps that mind going that there's always some kind of secret uh, group that's not just, for example, a capitalist class, but it is some other group that has some other interests that control things. Um, and and frankly, as as distrust in dominant institutions continues for obvious and correct reasons, um, conspiracy theories feed even bigger. And we see this anytime there's actually a resurgence of uh, like left populism that, that's driven into organizing. Conspiracy theories also grow. We have never had a president of the United States do what this president is doing. He is stoking a cold civil war in this country, and it has turned hot on the periphery. This man, Bowers, what, what he said was when he went in, he said, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw the optics. I'm going in. And he went in to kill Jews, the Jews he believed that were financing the caravan the invading army like a panzer division that is threatening the southern border, an army that is racked and riddled with disease. The same type of rhetoric, the same type of propaganda that you would have seen in Germany in 1938, the dehumanization, turning people into infested vermin. What Trump is doing is stoking and inciting for the purposes of political power, the worst amongst us to take action in his name. We have a situation where, but by for the grace of God, the largest mass assassination attempt in American history was avoided that targeted amongst them two former presidents of the United States. Every one of those people was a target of Donald Trump's. And this man, a fanatic was radicalized by Fox News, by talk radio, by a right wing propaganda machine that is as sophisticated as it has turned deadly. What we are seeing is the co-option of the conservative project, the Republican Party in a cult of personality, which is fundamentally unconservative, led by Donald Trump, that is authoritarian in nature that is antithetical to the orthodoxies of the Republican Party and the conservative movement if they, as they have existed over the last 40 years. But it is something more. It is the incitement. Imagine, after a bomb was sent to CNN, the president of the United States goes and says, the press, the free press, is the enemies of the people. And then he says, the anger in the country is caused by the press who reports critically of him. What he is saying to the next sick, sick person on the, on the end of the transmission is, if you take an action, it's because they deserve it. Let me ask you this final question. There's a memory holding that keeps happening. Everything you just said there has been echoed in the past at different moments by Mitt Romney, by Lindsey Graham, by Marco Rubio, by Rick Perry. I mean, on and on and on. Ben Shapiro wrote about this. There was times when the, when the confrontation with Trumpism was new to conservatives where they called it what it was. They saw it for what it was. And then slowly but surely, the Borg assimilates them. And what I find so unnerving is that you've watched one after another after another 
no longer able to muster the obvious clarity of that diagnosis. All of these people were happy to stand and assert that they believed in the American idea and ideal when the American idea and ideal was not being tested, when it was not under assault, when it was not being contested. What we see is a crisis of profound cowardice in what I would argue is the worst generation of political leadership the country may have ever had. The capitulation to this, the cowardice in the face of the evil that we saw this past weekend, the willful blindness and ignorance about the threat that is growing. And the question this week isn't who's going to keep control of Congress or get control of Congress. It's will there be more blood yeah. in this country this week heading to an election? And this is what we used to see around the world in banana republics, in emerging democracies, but not here. We don't settle our political disputes and elections with guns and knives. We don't have presidents in this country until now who stoke the American people to be at each other's throats. And after two years of this, this is the deadly consequence. problem with extremism, but it might not be the kind you're thinking of. In terms of sheer numbers of attacks in the U.S. over the last decade, one group in particular should stand out to you. Eleven worshippers shot and killed in a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh by a man shouting anti-Semitic slurs. Fourteen pipe bombs at the doors of leading Democratic politicians and donors and CNN. Two black customers shot in a grocery store in Kentucky by a white man after he failed to make it inside a predominantly black church minutes before. All within the last two weeks. White supremacist and other forms of right-wing violence are currently the deadliest active domestic extremist movements in the U.S., according to data from several civil rights groups that track hate crimes and extremist violence. Southern Poverty Law Center is one of those groups, we spoke with the center's Heidi Byrick, who's been following extremist movements for almost two decades to help break it all down. Let's just start with the numbers. Over the last decade, right-wing extremists committed more than 70% of extremist-related murders, according to a report published earlier this year by the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. The Government Accountability Office similarly reported in 2017 that right-wing extremists were responsible for 73% of fatal extremist incidents since 9-11. The most common groups victimized by these extremists are those who are Black, Hispanic, or part of a multiracial couple or family. It's important to note that right-wing domestic extremism is an umbrella term under which various right-wing ideologies fall in the U.S., Crimes committed by people who are anti-government, anti-Semitic, homophobic, Islamophobic, xenophobic, and fascist, among other things, also fall under this category. But of all the subgroups that fall under right-wing domestic extremism, white supremacists have committed the most attacks in recent years. Like the Charleston church shooting and the Charlottesville attack. When we talk about terrorism at the Southern Poverty Law Center, we're talking about white supremacy. And what I mean by that is somebody who believes the white race is literally 
better than all the other races. And these folks usually believe that the United States should be what they call a white ethno state. When it comes to racially motivated hate crimes, black Americans are overwhelmingly targeted. They make up 66% of the victims of racially motivated hate crimes since 1995. A recent report by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University San Bernardino shows that anti-black hate crimes were among the most common of any in at least five of the 10 largest US cities in 2017. And when it comes to extremist ideologies, there have been incidents of attacks inspired by the so-called Islamic State. For example, the mass shootings at Pulse nightclub in 2016 and a San Bernardino Health Center in 2015. But statistically, white American men in the US pose a bigger threat than foreigners committing acts of extremism. But you might not know that based on some of the coverage and political rhetoric surrounding extremism. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. I think Islam hates us. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? Journalists have also been complicit in the narrative that often paints white perpetrators as quiet or lone wolves rather than labeling them as terrorists, as they're often quicker to do with non-white perpetrators. Extremist attacks committed by those who are Muslim receive on average 357% more U.S. press coverage than those committed by non-Muslims, according to a recent university study. If all the domestic terrorists who are white males were covered as heavily and connected together in one story, we would have a different image that would come to our mind. Jumping ahead once again, now in 2020, things begin to come to a boil as abuses of power become ever more outrageous and begin to threaten the legitimacy of the government itself. So in the middle of the New Hampshire primary yesterday, right, this very important moment for the Democratic Party trying to pick their nominee to run against Donald Trump, we get this other story, right? This new milestone that we have hit in the Trump administration on rule of law issues. And it is a big enough story that it resulted in split front pages all around the country today. And this is the front page of the New York Times this morning. On the right hand, you see there's the politics. Sanders is winner in New Hampshire. On the left side, in all capital letters, Justice Department acts to ease sentence for Trump ally. Four U.S. prosecutors quit stone case after bosses step in to overrule them. All the way across the country, here's the Los Angeles Times. And there again is the picture of Senator Sanders, the triumphant picture. And you see the headline on politics halfway down the front page. Sanders edges Buttigieg in New Hampshire primary. But then right underneath the masthead there at the top, the competing story left two columns. Prosecutors quit over bid to lessen Stone's sentence. Here's the Hill newspaper in Washington, D.C. Quote, DOJ in chaos. Here's the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Four-column headline, all caps. Bold headline, right? All four prosecutors quit Stone case. Trump tweet spurs concerns of DOJ interference. Here's the headline in the Minneapolis Star Tribune today. And yes, they've got full coverage of Sanders grabbing the win in New Hampshire. And also on the front page today, hometown Senator Amy Klobuchar surging into third place in New Hampshire. We're going to be speaking live with Senator Klobuchar here in just a moment, right here on this show. But look at what's on top of the whole front page. DOJ revolt over leniency for Trump pal. So we are here. Believe them when they say who they are, 
right? You know, we are at that moment that this president did, in fact, promise during the campaign, right? And everybody said at the time how outrageous it was, how much it crossed a red line for him to say as a candidate that when he's president, he'd instruct his attorney general to prosecute his political opponents. He'd instruct his attorney general to pursue criminal cases on his presidential orders to serve his political needs, punish his enemies, protect his friends. When he said he would do that as a candidate, the outrage. But did you believe him? Well, here we are, right? And all of the alarms are going off about this. This is a front page thing, and it is as serious as you think it is. Here's a former senior Justice Department official who actually served well into the Trump administration. David Loffman was head of the counterintelligence division at the Justice Department, calling this a break glass in case of fire moment. Here's former Attorney General Eric Holder going right there as well. Quote, do not underestimate the danger of this situation. The political appointees in the DOJ are involving themselves in an inappropriate way in cases involving political allies of the president. In a statement last night, Attorney General Holder saying, quote, actions such as these put at risk the perceived and real neutral enforcement of our laws and ultimately endanger the fabric of our democracy. We've seen President Trump completely ignore the violence on the far right, and that's something that we've seen for a long time, um, starting with the Charlottesville rally in 2017. You know, what we're seeing is not terribly surprising. The far right has been attempting to demonize Antifa and paint them as, you know, inherently violent for years now. And we know that that is simply not true. Antifa is a community-based movement that is fighting for a more just and equitable society and fighting against fascism. And we know that in this country, the far right holds a monopoly on political violence. And that since September 11th, far right extremists have killed far more people than members of any other ideology. So it's not surprising to see, you know, it ignored by the president or to see that these violent attacks have taken place. We have been raising the alarm about the far right and the Boogaloo movement for months, as have um, several of our partner organizations, but we haven't seen a lot of movement from places like Facebook where they're congregating. I want to ask you about where the how they organize on Facebook. But first, <clears throat> this is not the first Boogaloo arrest in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests. Earlier this month, federal prosecutors in Las Vegas charged three men connected to the Boogaloo movement and have military experience with inciting violence during the protests there over the killing of George Floyd, and also with conspiracy to commit terrorism. Andrew Lynham is an Army reservist, Stephen Parshall, formerly enlisted in the Navy. Navy and William Loomis, formerly enlisted in the Air Force, each currently faces two federal charges, conspiracy to damage and destroy by fire and explosive, and possession of unregistered firearms. In state court, they've been accused of felony conspiracy, terrorism, and explosives possession. So that was in Nevada. And again, Trump has not tweeted about any of this or talked about the people who have been charged with not only conspiracy, but in the case of Carrillo— murdering two law enforcement folks. Yeah, um, we haven't seen any movement from that. Trump has repeatedly ignored the monopoly and violence on the far right and has instead used Antifa as a distraction. And Facebook organizing? 
How do they do it? On Facebook, we have seen the Boogaloo movement um, congregating on Facebook for several months now, and we know that they've been organized really since the outbreak of the coronavirus, because this is a moment of kind of uncertainty and unrest. And for the members of this movement, they think this could be kind of the moment to spark civil unrest and this civil war. And we know that there are more than 100 different Facebook groups that are actually dedicated to the Boogaloo, some with thousands of members. And a lot of the rhetoric on there violates Facebook's own terms of service. So people actively advocating for killing law enforcement, talking about building weapons, talking about building bombs. But Facebook hasn't done really anything about it. We have repeatedly warned them. Other researchers and journalists have repeatedly warned them. But there's been no movement, which is frankly sort of shocking at this point now that we know this has been linked to real world violence and murders. As we record this show on July 23rd, demonstrations in Portland, Oregon show no signs of slowing. Protesters demanding an end to racist policing in the wake of and even before George Floyd's murder had been met with what local activists describe as typical aggression from Portland's police department. The indiscriminate firing of tear gas and other munitions into peaceful crowds, flashbang grenades, beatings with batons. But then came the footage. A man dressed in black stands apparently alone on a darkened sidewalk when two heavily armed men in camouflage walk up on him, hustle him off into an unmarked van, and drive off, refusing to identify themselves to observers. We've since learned this is part of an orchestrated effort by the Trump administration to deploy federal law enforcement agents to deal SWAT-style with what they call violent anarchists. What's more, they plan to replay those nightmarish scenes from Portland wherever they see fit. As acting Homeland Security Chief Chad Wolf says, quote, I don't need invitations, close quote. Wolf also subsequently described federal agents as arresting demonstrators proactively. Alarm seems appropriate. Here to help us think about what we're seeing is author and legal scholar Marjorie Cohn. She's Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. She joins us now by phone from San Diego. Welcome back to Counterspin, Marjorie Cohn. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, these street pickups, when you first see it, you think it's a movie. As I understand it, the line is that these federal agents see someone not necessarily anyone they've seen commit a crime. They say they want to talk to that person, have a consensual conversation with them. And then they, the agents, fear for their own safety. So they decide they want to have that conversation elsewhere, like the courthouse. And then, oh, you're free to go. This wasn't even an arrest at all. Is that legal or constitutional? No, it's not. In order to have a legal arrest, 
you need probable cause to believe that the person committed a crime. And these snatches by unidentified federal officials in unmarked vehicles, snatching peaceful protesters off the streets, transporting them to unknown locations without informing them of why they're being arrested and later releasing them with no record of their arrest, violates the law. And this proactive arrest that uh, the Department of Homeland Security is intending to carry out violates the Fourth Amendment, which requires that, as I said, an arrest be supported by probable cause. This reminds me of the movie Minority Report, where they're trying to predict who's going to commit a crime. There's nothing in the law that allows proactive arrest. There have been lawsuits filed, and they basically allege violations of the First Amendment, freedom of speech and press, the Fourth Amendment, prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures, the Fifth Amendment, right to due process, and the Tenth Amendment, which says that powers not delegated to the feds are reserved to the states. And we conclude with a clear-eyed look at the movement within Trump's base, which is morally and intellectually bankrupt, but also primed for violence like never before. Here is one of the hard truths that we have to talk about, which is what you're describing right now, this relationship between Trumpism and an ISIS or an Al-Qaeda, we're talking about fundamentalism is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a group that says through like this conservative ideology or mythos, right? The idea that we need to go back into the past and we've somehow or another gone wrong. It is an apocalyptic conspiracy theory, which is what ISIS is all about. It's like, no, we have to go back into this place of caliphate, right? And we have to like raise statues and and you either have to conform or you die or you put into slavery or whatever. These are like brethren, Right. That like they're not going around killing people left and right the way that like an ISIS or an Al Qaeda had had done. Right. But that doesn't mean that they don't share a relationship in the way that they view the world. They do not see a pluralistic society. That's the whole point of, of, of what I've been warning about. These are not people who are like, oh, we really want to have a good showing at the next election. That's not what they're worried about because they're losing elections. They do not have the numbers to win in elections. And when an institution realizes that it cannot win elections anymore, it throws out democracy. It throws out the concept of pluralism. They want to go in and take this over. They want to go in and intimidate people. They want to go out and strike ba- uh, strike uh, uh, violence against them. You said yourself, it's like they're they're like going into these cities. And they're not, it's not, right now, it's paintballs, right? Like, right now, it's paintballs. And But in other places, in places like Ferguson, in places like Minneapolis, we saw people going in, in Kenosha, we saw people going in with actual weapons, right? I mean, one of these people who was, like, loosely affiliated with them, again, was caught on a rooftop, like, sniping people. Wasn't actually shooting, but was thinking about shooting, right? And was ready to shoot. The difference between a brutal counter-protest, if we want to call it that, and blood in the streets is just a couple of seconds. 
You know what I mean? Like it is it, it everything is primed. And if you think that there weren't people who went into Portland or who went into Los Angeles and wherever these people are going to go, if you think that there weren't people in these quote unquote counter protest and caravans who didn't go into this thing with the mindset of, I might have to hurt somebody today. I might have to kill somebody today. They think that. That's the mindset because they believe that they're righteous. They believe that they have, you know, the universe and and patriotism or whatever they want to claim today. There were people in this protest who were ready to carry out and mete out that kind of final violence. And we need to understand that the line between potential violence and violence is so thin, it can break at any given moment. Donald Trump is running as a wartime president. What he is telling his supporters is that they are engaged in a a cold and sometimes hot civil war and that they need a president who will be there and be on their side. That is the argument that Trump is making. And and by the way, part of it is ludicrous. This whole thing where it's like scenes from America in 2020, like this, this could be Joe Biden's America. Well, no, it's Trump's America. Because this is the only environment where he can succeed. And like, if you want to take a look at who he is, other presidents would not do this. They simply would, right? Because that's, and, and we've talked about this before. So much of politics is like business. It's willing to see how much risk you can take, right? And, and who's willing to like push the envelope further than the next person? Trump doesn't care. Trump has never suffered consequences in his entire life. He will push the envelope until it's completely off the table while others are like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. People would be mortified if they thought that their their supporters were carrying out this type of violence or were capable of sectarian violence. Trump doesn't care. He's said over and over that people should be... uh, like carried out of his rallies, that he would take care of the legal fees for anyone who beat up a a protester. Or, you know, in the past, we used to be a lot tougher. We need to be a lot tougher or whatever. You know, knock the hell out of them. Those types of things. He doesn't have a conscience with this. He's going to push this envelope. And I have to tell you, we still have months until this thing happens. Every single day is a new opportunity for a massive tragedy. And you know, and I know, that one tragedy is going to beget another tragedy, which will beget another. And it will just it'll, it'll just multiply. If the floodgates open, and there is a very real chance that they will open, we're looking at massive sectarian violence. We're looking at a massive, massive tragedy. And Donald Trump would not blink, blink about that. And I think what we saw in Kenosha shows us the Republican Party is more than willing to embrace it. They're not going to shy away. They are in on this thing. They've got their chips in. There's no pulling it back at this point. They are in on whatever happens from this point on. So I'm working on another project and I'm like looking at the history of like the modern world. There are these weird moments where there are schisms in like the Catholic Church where there are like multiple popes. Where like one group believes a guy is a pope and the other one believes that this guy is the pope. And you'll actually have like two or three popes at any given time. And then all of a sudden you start thinking about, oh, I don't know. You think about Lincoln and Jefferson being presidents at the same time, you know, with the Confederate States and the and, and the Union or whatever you want to call it. Um, the schism that you are describing between Trump and Biden feels so sickeningly familiar and so disturbingly familiar. Like this idea of like in these nations that sort of start to reach their conclusion or these states that start to reach their conclusion. And there are two people with like a, um, a claim to the throne, so to speak. Yeah. And you basically and I mean, that, that, that is the that is the root cause of every coup and every, you know, major sectarian or civil war that we've ever seen. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, people people need to understand that that we're we're tiptoeing up on onto the precipice of something really bad here. We've just heard clips from Ring of Fire, The Rachel Maddow Show, NPR, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Start Making Sense, Counterspin, a couple of white nationalists who don't have a show anymore, Ideas from the CBC, The Investigators, Democracy Now!, The Tom Harton Program, Revolutionary Left Radio, All In with Chris Hayes, Now This World Edition, and finally, The Muckrake Podcast. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote their messages to be played as voicemails. If you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. On a normal day, we would be hearing from you as well as maybe a few final comments of my own, but there is much normal about this week, it being our 15th anniversary and all. So we'll wrap things right here and try to pick up the pieces again next week. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their clutch research work that went into today's show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and on and on and on. And, of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.